as you know, there are a few things that I am able to do. I'm able to write. I'm able to play drums. I'm able to sit on the couch and watch endless hours of sports highlights. I'm able to eat my body weight, my ever-increasing body weight, in Apollo's baked spaghetti. Um, those are pretty sweet abilities, if you ask me. But that is essentially where the Lord stopped blessing me. After consuming ludicrous amounts of pasta, my giftings diminish. And one particular set of abilities has escaped me altogether, the gift of handiness. Whereas my dad is able to fix or build or put together or take apart or generally engineer literally anything. I've never come across a job where I'm like, Dad, can you help me? And he's like, no, I don't know how to do that. He always knows exactly what to do. He's very handy that way. Me, on the other hand, I'm only able to demolish, but I have to borrow your sledgehammer first because I'm pathetic. Case in point, in 2016, Angie and I reached a point of no return when it came to our basement. It was flooding perpetually and rotting all the woodwork in the basement, so we gutted it completely uh, end of August, beginning of September 2016. Uh, that was fun. The, the gutting, the de- demolition, Somebody, I borrowed a sledgehammer, and it was fun. Um, we ripped out decades-old water heater, the bathroom, the subflooring, the wall panels, the half-century-old, their original furnace, ripped it all out. We carried out a freezer from the 50s, which was a real behemoth. In the end, all that was left was the concrete floor, the washer and dryer, and some Cold War-era insulation in between the studs. So that was phase one. Phase one, complete. Work then began on phase two, replace the major appliances and take care of the flooding problem. Done and done. We got some system from Edmonton to come and drill around the edge of our the concrete around the thing, put in a sump pump and this, these trays that, that carry the water to the sump. And anyway, no flooding since then. Um, that's done. We, we got brand spanking new furnace and on-demand water heater and even an air conditioner, which isn't hooked up yet. So phase two, the major appliances, the flooding, done and done. Actually, it was done the same month as phase one, which means it was time for phase three, rebuild. Create a floor plan, take out the chimney, relevel the concrete, redo the electrical, which is very old and borderline dangerous, frame the new walls, reinsulate, install the new bathroom, replace the exterior windows, and maybe more. I don't know, and that's the thing. I don't know. It was 2016 when we completed phase two and looked forward to phase three, but we're no closer to the next stage today than we were 27 months ago. It's all the only thing that's different is about half of our garbage is back from grandma's house in our basement again. It's the only that's the only difference. Part of that is due to money, part is due to complacency, um, but most of it is due to the fact that I don't possess the necessary skills, like at all. Plumb a new bathroom sink, wouldn't even know where to begin. Frame the walls, best left to the professionals. Install exterior windows. There are windows in my house I don't even know how to open, never mind replace. Redo the electrical. Well, I'd rather not die in a gruesome electrocution. Thanks. So some of you are probably thinking I'm insane. Uh, Our friends, our pastor friends in Ontario, they're building an entire house from scratch, and he's doing it largely with his own hands. Uh, Yella has been working his butt off, getting the house ready for baby. I I admire that. They, They can hear this. And send me a text message shaming me if they want. They have earned the right. Um, others of you can empathize, even though, even though, like I think of Horst. Horst has all the necessary skills, but it's hard to find the time and the energy and the money 
when it's your own house. You just you get comfortable. Um, so maybe you're familiar with that too. Whatever your opinion might be, there sits our basement, a blank canvas, well, a canvas jam-packed with camping gear and laundry equipment and board games and a drum kit and many other things. So it's not exactly blank, but it's a canvas waiting, just waiting to be completed. It's ready. It's functional. The basics are in place. We celebrate the progress that's already been made, and we're very thankful for the financial and practical means that we have that saved our basement. But the good work is far from complete. And while there's no plan in place necessarily, we still look forward to the day when the basement will be completely finished. Right, Ange? Yeah, we look forward to that day. On that day, when we can go down to our basement and look around and just be proud of it, there will be much rejoicing in the kingdom of Chris and Angie Lance. Today is the second segment in the three-part mini-series on Paul's opening words to the Philippians. That's right, three parts. Two paragraphs. Yes. Yeah, you heard me, Dave. It's three parts on basically Paul saying hello. So there's a lot, lot of reasons why I deserve shame. Uh, last week, we looked at the opening greeting. It was one sentence. <laughs> it was one sentence that contains all the information we'll need about what Paul's beautiful letter will focus on. Anybody remember what those are, what the four things were, four focuses? Humility, unity, humility, unity, sanctity, which means becoming more and more like Jesus, and the gospel message. Those were the four. And all four are are right there in, in that opening sentence we, we looked at. Throw in a little eschatology, a word we looked at last week. What does eschatology mean? I'm going to say it a lot, so might as well see if you can remember it. Eschatology is the study of the last days, the end times. That's right. Eschaton means last uh, so the last days. So throw in, do you take those four, humility, unity, sanctity, the gospel, throw in a little eschatology, throw in a little suffering, and we will basically have, we know what we can expect this morning as well. All of those themes from the opening greeting will be emphasized more directly in the two prayers that follow his greeting. So he has a prayer for thanksgiving, that's verses 3 to 8, that's what we'll look at today. Then he has a prayer of petition, a prayer of intercession, where he prays, for something on behalf of the Philippians. That's verses 9 to 11. We'll look at that next week. They are both beautiful prayers. But studying somebody's prayers is a little like reading through somebody's diary. Seems like it would be a little too personal, a little too intimate for us to dig into 2,000 years later. Paul didn't write those words to us. The Holy Spirit intended them for us, but Paul didn't write them for us. They're his prayers for a certain group of people at a certain time. And so it feels a little invasive to study them. Except this is the Apostle Paul. Everything he writes is suffused with goodness and truth. Just like last week, we we looked at how Paul takes a standard greeting, which is a very formulaic thing, uh, and deviated from it. And in those deviations, we find the beautiful portrait of the purposes for his friendly letter to his buddies in Philippi. Um, Here, he will do the the same thing. Those Roman-friendly letters always began with from blank to blank greetings. Paul deviated from that standard form in beautiful ways. But then they would always be followed up with some sort of wish or prayer to the to the receiver of the letter. And it's in a perfunctory sort of way. It's sort of like us saying, hey, how are you? I don't even answer people when they ask me that because it, it's not a question that usually means anything. How are you just means hello. So it's like a wish. It's like a greeting. It's like in our letters we might write, 
Hope this letter finds you in good health. It's just a really generic, bland wish. But since this is Paul, those formulaic wishes and prayers are instead stuffed full of Christ-like love and affection, not to mention the themes of the entire letter. So yeah, it's intimate and it's personal, but in those intimate details, we find meaning, I think, for ourselves. It's a prayer from one jailed apostle to a relatively small and humble but thriving and fruitful Macedonian congregation in Philippi. That's how it was originally written. But I think we'll see some beautiful truth for ourselves. I think we'll be able to see that the way Paul views his friends in Philippi is very similar to how God our Father views us as something like the basement that I mentioned earlier. So let's read this, let's read this really lovely intimate prayer in verses 3 to 8 and see how we can apply it to ourselves. So 3 to 8, Dave, that's, that's six verses today, Dave. Not two, as he was bugging me earlier. Six verses. Verses three to eight. I thank my God every time I remember you. By the way, I learned that verse as every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. And I think Christy had us memorize that one time in youth group. And I've never forgotten that. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first days until now. Being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So as you can see, Paul is miles away from offering a meaningless, perfunctory sort of how are you doing, Philippians. It begins with, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Or, I guess, I thank my God every time I remember you. That's how it begins. In the middle is that phrase where he says, I have you in my heart. And it ends with the phrase, I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's deeply emotional, deeply personal, and very, very beautiful. But more than anything, it's rooted in a thorough and holy sort of thankfulness. Two things need to inform our background knowledge for this passage. They're things that you already know about, but they really make the passage as a whole come alive. So first of all, as you know, Paul is writing under house arrest, meaning his longing for the Philippians is very real. He first established the Philippian church some 10, or sorry, some 13 years earlier, around 50 AD, and he's writing this around 62, 63 AD. And it's been at least five years since he last saw these friends in person. So he's missing them. He's relying on messages from friends like Epaphroditus for contact, but messages are not the same as personal contact. Messaging someone on Facebook is not the same as sitting down for for coffee with them. Considering the Philippians have been his most consistent supporters and at times his only supporters, that's a long time to be away from what he would consider his home base. The Philippians are like his home congregation. They bring him so much joy. They're always supporting him. They're like his home base. And, And that's a long time to be away from your your main supporting church. The fact that he's under house arrest brings to light the first suggestion of what will become a major theme in the rest of the letter, and that's persecution. Paul mentions his chains in verse 7, a theme that he'll expand on immediately after these two opening prayers are finished. However, despite the many miles of separation from his friends and the many tears of longing for an in-person visit, and despite the chains of unjust persecution that prevent Paul's freedom of travel, It's impossible to miss how this entire prayer refuses to dissolve into self-pity. Quite the opposite, in fact. Paul is positively radiant with joy. 
in this prayer and throughout the letter. In fact, verse 4 is the first of 16 occurrences of the Greek root word for joy. 16 in four chapters is way above the standard ratio for a letter from Paul. This this letter, more than any other, is, is infused with joy. Part of this joy is sourced in the second piece of background information that we need for this prayer. As as you also know, a major reason why Paul sat down to compose this letter with Timothy is because of the great financial gift that the Philippians have sent to Paul. Despite their own poverty, as it mentions in 2 Corinthians, and despite their own persecution, as it mentions here in this letter, Paul's friends scrapped together a large offering that did as much to fill Paul's heart as it did to fill his coin purse. This impressive gift seems to be at the background of everything in this prayer passage, and perhaps shapes the direction of Paul's gratefulness, thankfulness, and joy, despite the chains that others might assume would be holding back his rejoicing. Wouldn't you think that receiving a huge gift like this out of nowhere from beloved people you haven't seen in a long time would cause you to sit down and write a letter and that that gift would be the source of your joy? And so verses 3 to 8 are a sort of seem like a holy response to the reception of a financial gift, right? He thanks God whenever he sends someone out to buy bread, because he can't go to buy bread for himself, he would send somebody for that, with the money that he got from the Philippians. So every time every time he spends money, he is thankful for the Philippians because they gave him that money. He prays for all the Philippians. There's that meaningful three-letter word again, all. talked about that last week. He prays for all the Philippians because all the Philippians contributed some cash, right? In verse 7, Paul mentions how the Philippians are sharing in God's grace, and that sharing obviously means the money that they're sharing, right? And right in the middle, in verse 6, Paul speaks of a good work that was begun through the Philippians, which will come to pl- completion when Paul is freed from jail and is is can adequately spend it in ways that will maximize every dollar for the spreading of the gospel, right? That's what he means by the good work. It's the money that they sent. This entire prayer, this entire letter, is a response to the gift of money Paul received from the church of Philippi, isn't it? Well, as you can probably tell by the tone in my voice, there's a lot more going on here than just a happy thank you for a gift. Is that what I... Yeah, there's there's a lot more... Paul isn't like some seven-year-old who got a, a card in the mail from his grandma with a $5 bill and a toonie taped in it. Now mom makes him phone and say, thank you for the gift, grandma. Paul's not doing that. The roots of Paul's appreciation and thankfulness and joy go far deeper than just this one gift that he got. The one gift was sent by Epaphroditus. And so Epaphroditus is there. And so Paul takes the, mo- the, the opportunity to write a letter and send it back. But he doesn't write... The thank yous and the joy and the appreciation that we read in this prayer don't come just from that gift. We'll get into that in a bit. Before examining that question, let's take a couple minutes to look at some of the big picture themes that I mentioned earlier. Remember, although although we've already studied the major overarching theme of this book over the last two weeks, which kind of serve as an introduction to Philippians, we're still only in the second paragraph of the letter. So as we're reading it, Paul's purposes are unfolding in real time. Each time they crop up, they're a little brighter, a little livelier, and a little lovelier. We'll take uh, a a look briefly at the four themes from last week and then two more. These are, again, humility, unity, sanctity, the supremacy of the gospel, eschatology, which is end times, and suffering. Actually, we've already talked about the suffering. So look, one down, two or five more to go. So we can put that one aside. Let's start with humility. 
It's a bit of a stretch, but I think it's really humbling to read the great Apostle Paul, pillar of the church, author of half the New Testament, instrumental in the gospel going to the Gentiles, the Paul, the apostle, is using very equivocal language towards the congregation of people whose only names we have are the two who happen to be bickering at the time. We are familiar with Lydia. We are familiar with the jailer and the demon-possessed girl. They're not named here. The only names we have are, are Euodia, Syntyche, and Epaphroditus. We don't know anything, any of the other people here. But Paul, the Paul, the apostle, equates himself with all these people who we know nothing about. They are co-workers and partners with him in verse 5, who, in verse 7, share in God's grace with Paul, who considers himself not above them, but equal with them. Friends on the same level. That's an act of humility. Moreover, despite the fact that Paul's meeting with Lydia and the other women worshipping at the river outside the city, that was the genesis of the church, meaning that without Paul, the church wouldn't exist at all. Despite that, Paul takes no credit for their birth or growth or flourishing. The he in the in verse 6 where it says, he who began a good work in you, that's not Paul. Paul is not the he who began a good work. That he is uppercase. Paul takes no credit because all credit belongs to the Father who brought them to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. He is the one who began the good work in them, not Paul. So Paul steps aside. That is humility. Paul had every right to claim, hey, you guys wouldn't even exist. You wouldn't know Jesus at all if it weren't for me and my friends Timothy and Silas and Luke. But he doesn't do that. That's not his thing. His thing isn't promoting the gospel of Paul. His thing is promoting the gospel of Jesus. So he steps aside. Next, let's look at unity. The powerful theme of unity is supported in this passage through two words. One is English. One is Greek. Any guesses what the English word that promotes unity is? Same one we looked at last week. It's three letters long. That's right, Dave. All. Paul said he wrote to all God's holy people. We looked at that last week. Well, that all increases exponentially in this prayer of thanksgiving. Four times in these six verses, Paul emphatically uses the word all in the sense of all you people. In verse 4, he mentions prayers for all of them, that he prays for all of them, not just the ones who are getting along. He prays for all of them. In verse 7, he feels confident and joyful for the future of all of the Philippians, since later in the same verse, all of them share in God's grace with Paul. And he finishes off the first prayer by stating, with an oath to God, no less, that he longs for all of his friends with the affection of Christ Jesus. All, 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 all. That's a lot of all. And that all includes both Euodia and Syntyche, who are feuding, as well as those who may choose sides with either of those leading women. Paul is not writing just to the leaders, the deacons and overseers he's mentioned. He's not writing just to those who gave the most money to him in this gift. He is writing to all. And he means that because he, like the God he serves, loves them all. And he wants to emphasize early in the letter the sense of unity that he will later specifically address several times. So that's the English word, all. As for the Greek word, it's a real powerhouse when it comes to theological impact. Has anyone ever heard of the word koinonia? Yeah, it, if you've been in church for a while, it's a word you've probably heard. Anybody know what koinonia means? Fellowship. I'm glad you said that, Christy. If you say fellowship, you're right. That's the word that our translations generally choose. And it's a good translation, too. 
as long as we have a proper understanding of what fellowship means. When I say church fellowship, what do you think of? Potluck. It's exactly what I think of. I think of potluck. I think of coffee time after church. That is fellowship, right? Um, Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that those things don't have worth because I I would be the last one to say that Barb's egg salad sandwiches and Angie's pulled pork and that sweet, sweet manna from heaven, poppy seed cake. I would I'd be the last to say that those things aren't a crucial part of the church because they are. Everyone, Everything you guys bring, food-wise, love it all. It's great. It's just that if we limit fellowship to a synonym for hanging out together or even sharing common beliefs together, then it really neuters the power of the Greek word koinonia, which is a strong word. Koinonia is fellowship, but another word for fellow is friend, or even better, companion, or even better, partner. So if you stick partner in there instead of fellow, then fellowship becomes partnership, as the NIV chose to translate the word in verse 6. And if fellowship conjures up image, images of sort of passive enjoyment of each other's company, sitting and eating, which is very passive, well, partnership conjures up images of active participation, which is the real sense of the word koinonia. The church is all about koinonia, brothers and sisters serving our Father together. You see the unity of that, right? That fellowship, in the sense of hanging out together, that's an act of unity, so it's important. But that's not what the word means here. Here it means active participation, partnership. We're all after the same goal. There was one time several years ago where I got in trouble from a parent in the school because of something I said to their child. Actually, not something I said to their child, something I wrote in a Valentine's card. And that I said, I love you, to the kid. Which to me is something that is worth having men in the community say to children. But they didn't appreciate that. They didn't like that. And so we had this really tense and really frustrating meeting, me and the parents and our administration. They said their piece and... And I kind of bit my tongue and got up and left. But I didn't feel good about it. So I went back in the room and I shook their hands and I said, look, in the end, we can disagree on some things. And I'm sorry that what I did bothered you. But you need to know that I have the same goal as you do. That I want this kid to thrive just as much as you do. And that meant something to them. The, The relationship wasn't perfect after that. But the tension was gone. Because we... We're able to communicate to each other, you know what? In the end, our purpose is the same. We want the best for this child. The school and parents are partners in the education of a child. And divisiveness, the only one that really hurts is the kid in question. We both want the same thing. After that, like I said, the relationship wasn't great. But the tension was gone. And that is the power of koinonia. How much more powerful is it when the thing that we are partnering in it in is more than just the fact that A says ah and 7 comes after 6. How much more powerful is it when the thing we are partnering in is the spreading of our God's timeless transformative love? How much more powerful is it when the thing we are partnering in is the eternal salvation of our neighbor's souls? How much more powerful is it when the thing that we are partnering in is the eternal glory of our Savior who will come again in judgment and authority and perfection? How much more powerful is it when the thing that we are partnering in is the shared journey of being shaped bit by bit into a holy thing that looks and sounds and behaves more like Jesus? There is power in our koinonia, our laying aside of differences to partner together in furthering the gospel. 
That is unity. There's power in that. And that leads us nicely to the final three. So we've got humility, check, unity, check, suffering, check. That leads us to the final three. Sanctity, the supremacy of the gospel, and eschatology. It also leads us nicely into the point of this prayer, and I think the lesson for us this morning. I mentioned earlier that the roots of Paul's appreciation, thankfulness, and joy towards the Philippians go far deeper than just this financial gift that they've given him. Paul didn't write a letter to say, thanks for the cash, you guys. Smarten up a little in these areas, would you? But keep sending those sweet, sweet denarii. That's not why he's writing. No, the roots of Paul's affectionate care for the Philippians, the roots of his emotional outpouring of joy and thanks, are found in sanctity, the gospel, and eschatology. Paul outlines very specifically why he always says thank you to God every time he thinks about these friends of his, and why he continually rejoices over the church in Philippi. In verses 5, 6, and 7, Paul speaks of their koinonia, their active partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, uh, the crucial fact, that the one who began a good work in the Philippians will carry it on to completion, excuse me, until the day of Christ Jesus. The follow-up reason is that they share in God's grace with Paul, despite his chains. This partnership, this good work, this completion, this grace, none of it has much to do with the fantastic financial gift that Paul's just received. It's not what he's talking about. Rather, the gift itself is indicative of to Paul of something deeper and more praiseworthy. That the Philippians, they get it. The Philippians get it. They understand. Some other churches, they get ensnared by the latest heresy or the latest false teacher or the latest wave of legalism or the latest oppressive outburst or the latest infighting. There are a lot of ways that these early churches will get tripped up. And Paul writes a lot of letters to a lot of churches addressing those many issues. But not the Philippian church. They are not perfect, and the cracks of disunity and division are beginning to show, you audience into keeping the, the named examples, but the Philippians are committed to sanctity. They are committed to becoming more and more like Jesus so that his gospel can be advanced until the day that he returns. And that is an eschatological phrase, the day of Christ Jesus. That means the day of his return. When scripture says the day of the Lord or the day of Christ Jesus, that means the end times, the day of judgment. And Paul is confident that when that day rolls around, the Philippians will be safe and secure in their salvation. And that's what brings him joy. That's where his joy comes from. That's what he's thankful for. That the Philippians get it. That they are thriving. This gift is not the thing he's thankful for. What he's thankful for is the fact that this gift shows their hearts are in the right place. That they understand that the gospel takes work and sacrifice. And that they're willing to make that sacrifice to further the gospel. That when the day of the Lord comes, they can face the Lord knowing that they ran the good race, that they fought the good fight. That's why Paul rejoices. As powerful and as beautiful as verse 6 is, it has the potential to be dangerously misunderstood. In the same way that we can misunderstand the good works uh, that Paul writes about to mean simply the financial gift of the Philippians, we can also misunderstand it for our own context. This is a a proof, te- a commonly proof-texted verse. You know what proof-texting is? So where you find one verse isolated from the, the whole context of the, the passage it's in or the book it's in, and you use that isolated verse to prove what your argument is. And this verse has been used dangerously as, as a proof-text 
in a lot of ways. Let me explain. I've read this verse being used to propagate a twisted corruption of the gospel where scripture is used to validate Christians getting disgustingly wealthy off predatory pleas for donations or the heretical claims that God's will for you is to be rich, comfortable, and self-sufficient. That is heresy. It is borderline blasphemous. In other words, these wolves in sheep's clothing claim that the kindly trailer park widows who watch their program can participate in the good works of their television evangelism, which can only come to completion if they send check after check after check to them so that they they can, uh, because God's will for them is to have fancy personal jets and gold watches. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I am not exaggerating. They will literally prey on, on these people like predators, send what money you have, they'll weep, they'll whatever, send what money you have so God can, can finish this good ministry that, that we've, we're beginning here. It's predatory and it's disgusting. Or self-serving prosperity evangelists who have apparently never read the actual words of Jesus but who write endless books and preach in sprawling megachurches the false truth that the only kind of work that is truly blessed is that which makes you happy, comfortable, and privileged. They use verse 6 to claim that you are not complete until good things come to you. And by good things, they mean wealth and comfort and privilege. Now, does anything about your knowledge of Paul's situation or the Philippian situation, does anything in the words of Jesus make you read this verse and say, yeah, Paul wants them to be fabulously wealthy? No, it's disgusting. It's a gross and tragic misrepresentation of Paul's joyful thanksgiving in this prayer. And worse than that, it's a twisted, blasphemous misrepresentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in which those who are blessed are those who what? Mourn, those who weep, those who are humble and meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who suffer. I don't get how you can use this to prove text that God wants you to be wealthy. God may choose for you to be wealthy. That's up to him and you. God may choose that. I'm not saying it's wrong necessarily to be wealthy. But I am saying that you cannot use verses like this to claim that God wants you to be wealthy. Do you understand? Does that make sense? This is important. Because the Philippians, in Paul's eyes, they meet all of Jesus' qualifications, the gospel-centric qualifications for blessedness. That's why he rejoices. The Philippians aren't rich. The opposite. They are very poor. The Philippians aren't comfortable. The opposite. They are suffering under persecution. But that's why they're blessed. The good work that's being carried out has nothing to do with finances, really, at all. The first day mentioned by Paul in verse 5, what do you think that means? It's not the first day that they started collecting cash for him. The first day is obviously the day that they heard the gospel and responded. For us, that is phase one of the basement renovation. It's demolition. For us, the first day is the day of demolition. The first day was the phase in our life, possibly one event, more likely a long, slow realization where we came to a tipping point. We could no longer ignore the filthy, rotten, flooded woodwork that was our own selfish, bitter hearts. Something had to be done. 
We needed to be torn down, whether by an act of suffering or by the truth of Scripture or by the words of somebody that we love. Or probably some combination of those things. But that act of demolition, demolition of our heart, demolition of our self and our pride and our ego, that was the first day. That was phase one. That was demolition of the self for the purpose of renovating us into his image rather than our own image. Does that sound anything like the prosperity gospel? More, 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 take, 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 get, get, get? No, it's the opposite. The first day is the day of demolition. Phase one of a many-phase process. Then, in verse 6, a good work begins. And we know Paul isn't talking about just the good work of the financial gift because he says the good work is in the Philippians, not from the Philippians or through the Philippians, as he would say if it was just the money. The good work is in the Philippians. It's an inward work. It is salvation. It is sanctification. Being made more and more like Jesus. This, therefore, is phase two. Restoring the basics. So once you've gutted yourself, then you need a foundation. You need to rebuild the most important things. Just as we needed to stop the flooding in our basement, Christ needs to stop the flood of selfish comfort and prideful judgment and ugly behavior that turns us rotten. But once the flooding is stopped, or at least diverted in the proper channels, we have a sump pump now to get rid of the rot. For us, the sump pump, this is a sump pump right here, communion. It uh, is a reminder of how broken and corrupt we are. So maybe the rot doesn't all the way go away, but it at least slows down and is channeled properly. But once, once that happens, then you can replace the essential appliances. For us, it would have been foolish for us to use up all our money, what money we had, building first a full washroom downstairs before installing a new furnace. Because once November rolls around, yeah, it's nice to be able to go pee in peace, but not if that toilet is completely frozen up. You need a furnace in Alberta. That's the priority. It's the same with phase two of our salvation. The old inefficient water heater of of self-sufficiency, of independence, doesn't work. It had to be replaced with a faithful on-demand recognition that God is in charge. The clunky ancient furnace of vain pursuits and ignorant hate is replaced with the clean burning furnace of selfless humility and Christ-like servant-heartedness. This was what made Paul rejoice. Not that he was a recipient of a gift from the Philippians, but that the Philippians were so healthy and alive in the gospel that they were willing and able to make such a joyfully sacrificial gift. They were pleased to further the glory of God despite their own limitations and sufferings. They were filled with a passionate care for God's people and weren't afraid to support Paul despite his chains. Phase two has been a resounding success. The basics are in place. They are looking a lot like slaves of Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul is so pleased that he is looking forward to phase three. Phase three is the eschatological phase, looking ahead to the beautiful completion. Paul writes, The one who began a good work in you, God the Father through the Holy Spirit, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Our basement is not done. Not even close. It may never be fully finished, as far as I know. (laughs) Angie's got sad face. Just being realistic here. It may never be fully finished, as far as we know, but we still look forward. We know it's not done, but we expect better things ahead. So it is with phase three of the heart and the soul. The good work that our master renovator is doing in us is not complete, not even close. I can see cracks in my foundation, 
and some of the beams have a lingering rot to them, and there's still way too much clutter in there, for sure, in me. But if I look at where I was and where God has taken me so far, if I look at all the work that he's already done and is being done in me presently, today, from that first day until this day, I can't help but be thankful. I can't help but rejoice. I too am confident, as Paul says, that the work will one day be completed, not just of my basement, but in me. The work on me will one day be completed. And on that day, I will stand before the one who holds all blueprints for all things, and in that instant, I will be made complete. No more leaks, no more inefficiencies, no more rot, no more clutter. I will be complete. It is right for me to feel this way, as Paul says in verse 7. It's right for you to feel that way about yourself. It is right for you to have bold confidence as well, because you too are koinonia. You too are active participants in God's grace and God's glory. We are being shaped together by his love into something greater. Despite the darkness and pain that's all around us, we are being sanctified, being made more and more like our master. I may not have any handy skills for this renovation process unless eating spaghetti somehow leads to the proper installation of vinyl flooring. I don't think it does. So I'm just going to say I don't have any of the necessary skills to get this renovation done. I may not have the knowledge or tools or abilities necessary to finish this good work within me. Just as I don't have the tools to finish my basement, I don't have the tools to finish the good work in myself. My father is even handier than my dad, and my dad's pretty handy. But my father, my heavenly father, is even handier. And he began this work in me, in us. And he is tinkering away every moment that we allow him. And we can have faith that one day, on his day, His grace will make us complete. What a beautiful reason to be united, to be humble, and to rejoice and give thanks together. Our master architect has a plan. He's working on us. And one day, one day, unlike my basement, it will be finished. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your spirit's good work within us. Thank you that we are becoming more and more like you. We don't always see it. We definitely believe it to be true. We cling to it. It is our our hope and our defense. And so I pray that as we live sanctified lives now, that that holiness, that that goodness that you're doing in us would bring you praise and glory. It's not for our praise and glory, it's for yours. So Father, please continue to take out the rot and the inefficiency and the clutter that's within us. Get rid of that mess and make us more and more like you so that you can be praised and glorified. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's, uh, let's go have some fellowship. By the way, and I'm not offering a spiritual metaphor here, but if anyone wants to finish our basement for us, please do. Come on over and do whatever it is you want to do. And that sweet, sweet manna from heaven, poppy seed cake, 